Blog Talk Radio. everybody. Welcome to the show. I apologize if you get some noise in the background. It appears like there's some construction going on nearby, and it's loud, and it's annoying, and we're going to unfortunately have to deal with it. It is what it is, but I have uh, an amazing show for you guys today. Obviously, we have updates on what's going on in Afghanistan. Bill Maher weighs in. Trump weighs in. Um, I have... uh, I'll do a segment for you guys on the vaccine. Is the vaccine less effective against Delta? Yes or no? I have the numbers, and I will explain to you uh, all the relevant facts. Um, The Supreme Court decided to throw out the new eviction ban. Disaster. We got Ilhan Omar standing up for drone whistleblowers. Somehow Sarah Palin made it into today's show. There's a lot of stuff to get to. By the way, Um, As I said before, so there's going to be no show on Monday and no show on Wednesday. Not this Wednesday, there is one next Wednesday, I mean. Um, But it's okay because I have a new series, a special series, uploading for everybody. While I'm gone, I'll be on vacation for the first time in a very, very long time. Um, Don't know how that'll go, but we'll find out. We'll see. And obviously, if there's something that I can't help myself, I will record a video from vacation to talk to you guys about it. So, um, but either way, you're not going to want to miss what's going to upload on the YouTube channel. Should be a lot of funsies. Um, I'm trying to make everybody hate me before the end of the year. So we're working on that. Um, anyway, without further ado, let's get started. Let's jump right into it. And we'll tell you what's going on with uh, Afghanistan and Biden's reaction. So we got the news um, a couple days ago, that there was a disastrous terror attack just outside of the Kabul airport. Um, 
more news has come out over the past few days. So we learned that originally we thought there were two bombs that went off. It turns out there wasn't two bombs, or most reporting is that there wasn't two bombs. There was one bomb that went off, and then afterwards, in the chaos and the mayhem that was unfolding, you had um, the U.S. military basically open fire in all different directions and ended up killing, unfortunately, a massive number of civilians. So we had, I mean, the death toll from the attack at the Kabul airport is 170. Now, we don't know how many of them died in the initial bomb blast versus how many of them were mowed down afterwards, uh, but we do know a lot of civilians died. Even the Taliban fighters died because the Taliban didn't do the attack. It was ISIS who did the attack. Um, and, of course, 13 U.S. soldiers died. So this was horrendous. This led to Joe Biden immediately coming out and giving a speech and saying, you know, we're going to hunt you down on our timeline whenever we decide the place of our choosing. And, uh, you know, he gave a speech where he was trying to sound really macho and tough he, thankfully, yet again, he said, you know, we're getting out in that speech. But um, listen, Biden uh, did something in response to this attack, which unfortunately is the perfect encapsulation of the way that this entire war went. So let me go to this article here for you guys. This is from Truthout. Here's what they say. Even as he planned to withdraw all remaining U.S. troops from Afghanistan by August 31st, President Joe Biden said Saturday that the drone strike that was launched Friday night in retaliation for an attack claimed by ISIS-K, quote, was not the last. We will continue to hunt down any person involved in that heinous attack and make them pay, the president said in a statement Saturday afternoon. Whenever anyone seeks to harm the United States or attack our troops, we will respond. That will never be in doubt. The Pentagon said the drone strike killed two planners and facilitators of the explosion outside Kabul's airport. But according to The Guardian, in addition to targets related to the ISIS affiliate in Afghanistan and Pakistan, an elder, Jalalabad reported, an elder in Jalalabad reported that three civilians were killed and four were wounded in the U.S. strike. Now, so he did a retaliatory strike, a revenge strike, and the more time has gone by after this, the more we learned it is nothing like the Pentagon initially said. And again, a good encapsulation of the war, it's almost never what the Pentagon says and what the intelligence agencies say. So uh, we learned this. Nine civilians from one family were also killed in this strike against ISIS. A man who lost his brother told CNN. Six were kids, 10 years old or younger. Now, the media the dupes that they are and the charlatans and the frauds that they are. When the Pentagon said, we did an attack responding to these facilitators and these terrorists and these planners, and we, got, we hit our target, there's no civilian casualties. Can you imagine being in mainstream media and reporting that as if it's factual? Not doing your job and doing investigative reporting and doing digging and trying to find out, but just being a stenographer to the deep state and saying, here's the thing that's true because they said it. Well, now we know, again, the more time has gone by, he killed a giant number of civilians, including many children, many children. And now their pictures are floating around on social media as well. So, you know, lesson for the media for the 9,312th time, don't take the intelligence agencies and don't take the Pentagon at their word. Your job is to fact check. Your jo job is to verify. Your job is to do investigative reporting. But instead, they just pick up the phone and listen to 
some guy wearing a finely pressed suit with some flags on it, and they say, what he says must be true, because look at him, he looks official. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. It's absurd. And like I said, this is what the war in Afghanistan looked like. This is what it looked like every step of the way. You had people who were effectively pretending to know what they were talking about, know what they were doing, and had a goal in mind, and they were shooting in every which direction and massacring civilians. There were more civilians who died in the war in Afghanistan than combatants. Think about that. More civilians than combatants. And so what if this really is the exact way the entire war went? I want you to meditate on that for a second. 20-year war. The reason we were told we were going in there obviously was a lie. Oh, get Osama bin Laden to destroy al-Qaeda. All that was done by 2011. Why were we still there? And then just permanently occupy the country, jack the natural resources, keep China and Russia at bay. I mean, make profits for the military-industrial complex. This is what really went into it. And the idea that on the ground they were, you know, highly coordinated and doing things properly. I mean, they used to lie and argue that our laser-guided weapons can kill a mosquito from 10 miles away. Clearly not. Clearly not. Now, I don't know who fed in this intelligence. Um, I don't know what the hell this was based on. But this right here is a war crime. Try to get revenge and retribution and do it willy-nilly and just listen to a report, obviously based on nothing, that says, oh, this is where the planner of the attack is. Are you kidding me? And now children are dead. Civilians are dead. Now, we saw an absolute meltdown from the right the other day and from corporate Democrats when uh, the attack happened on the Kabul airport, an attack that they warned was coming, and we heard impeach Biden, impeach him, or he should resign. Everybody and their mother was flipping out and condemning him. But now we learn this. I haven't heard a peep from the right. I haven't heard a peep from corporate Democrats. Is this what you want? Is this what you want? You want the revenge and the retribution and the retaliation that ends up massacring kids? So nobody says anything about impeach or resign when we massacre kids. But before, when we were the victim of an attack and other Afghan civilians were, and even the Taliban was the victim of the ISIS attack, that somehow is Biden's fault and he needs to resign for it. You see how our moral compass is broken and our system is totally decrepit and corrupt and disgusting? There's no other way to describe that. That's exactly what that is. Just like nobody called for impeaching Biden over two illegal bombings on Syria, illegal and offensive bombings in Syria. Nobody said anything. But from withdrawing from Afghanistan, well, that you should be impeached over. Doing the good thing, you should be impeached over. But all the bad things, not only are we not going to impeach you for it, we're not going to condemn you for it, we're not going to say anything about it. We're just going to go with the initial line that you ended up getting the people who planned the attack or whatever. Jesus Christ, man. Get out. Get out now. Wrap it up. We're donezo. We're dunskies. We can't have this anymore. Let the right wing crow about how, you know, oh, you should have stayed in Afghanistan forever or whatever the hell. Just don't do this. And by the way, this was one of my fears. One of my fears was, It's just nonstop prodding from the right, prodding from a hawkish neocon perspective over and over and over and over and over. And eventually, Biden gives in and does something stupid like this. You give in to dishonest people, and this is what happens. You end up killing civilians. I mean, this absolutely breaks my heart. Now, by the way, 
that attack from ISIS made it much more likely that now we're going to have, a, you know, a continued drone presence there or, or fighter jet presence there in Afghanistan. Get everybody out. Get, I mean, I don't want to see the drones. I don't want to see the fighter jets. I don't want to see any boots on the ground, whether they're contractors or whether they're, you know, uh, troops, U.S. troops. I want them out. I want them out. Now, thankfully, we've evacuated over 100,000 people now. So we did a good job with the evacuation. But we had this attack, and there are reports that more attacks are coming. In fact, there was a rocket attack or something last night at the Kabul airport, but I haven't seen much of an update on that, so I don't know if there were that many civilians. But you've got to get out. You've got to wrap it up. Don't listen to them, Joe. Don't listen to the naysayers. By the way, interesting story came out yesterday. We learned that um, neocons and corporate media are trying to frame it like this. Um, the Taliban all but gave Kabul to the Americans, and Biden declined. So they're trying to frame it like that. So everybody goes, ooh, what? How could you do such a thing? The reality of the situation is what? Everybody knew that the Afghan military wasn't going to be able to hold it because they're a paper tiger, and they're totally useless. So Joe Biden declined. The United States permanently running every single checkpoint in Kabul for the near future. Yeah, he did that, and that's a good thing. In other words, Joe Biden was like, no, we're, we're gonzo. We're out of here. We're not doing it anymore. That's it. So, but look at all like, the little traps that had to be avoided on the way out, where they try to, you know, whether it's the deep state or uh, um, the corporate Democrats or the Republicans or negotiators, where they try to get you to spend just a little bit keep just a few more people there. What if we did this middle ground, this non-existent middle ground, which would be a total disaster? And thankfully, to that point, Joe stuck his guns. No, we're getting out. No, we're getting out. No, we're getting out. This is the biggest problem yet. This is a war crime. That's what this is. But again, it's amazing that you don't see the outcry from anybody except left Twitter over this. But everybody was screaming, impeach, resign, and worst president ever, when he did the right thing and withdrew. And there was an attack, no fault of his own, he didn't do anything wrong, and there was an attack, and somehow he needs to resign over that when we're the victim of something. But when we actively, offensively massacre children, mum's the word, because this is the status quo. This is what we're used to. And it gets right back to the point we've made a million times, selective outrage. And that's how you know these people are liars. When, it, when the withdrawal is happening, everything's under a microscope and everything is scrutinized. The 20 years of endless war where we allied with warlords, with child sex slaves, where we bombed hospitals and weddings, that, mum's the word, no problem with that at all. So there you have it, Joe Biden committing war crimes and very little backlash at all. All the backlash is reserved for when he does the right things like getting out. All right, next. Bill Maher um, really broke the smug meter here with his take on Afghanistan. This is a new take that I've seen in a number of places where people are doing mental gymnastics, trying to connect wokeness to the war in Afghanistan and the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Take a look. And finally, no, blind hatred of America is just as blinkered as blind love. 
and we, and we Americans should really get some perspective about where we live. Watching the shit go down in Afghanistan, I was reminded lately of every conversation I've ever had with an immigrant, almost all of which, if we got to really talking, included the notion, oh, you people have no idea. All you do is bitch about and badmouth your own country, but if you knew about the country I came from, you'd stop shitting on your own. But that doesn't make us the bad guys. We're not the bad guys. Oppression is what we were trying to stop in Afghanistan. We failed, but any immigrant will tell you we've largely succeeded here, and yet the overriding thrust of current woke ideology is that America is rotten to the core, irredeemably racist from the moment it was founded, and so oppressive, sexist, and homophobic, we can't find a host for the Oscars or Jeopardy. <laughs> I'm sure you heard the new Jeopardy guy is out because he said boobies in 2014. <laughs> and this is where your new Afghani roommates that you took in will, will, will prove so valuable because they'll turn to you and say, have you people lost your fucking mind? Have you... Have you ever heard of honor killings, public beheadings, throwing gay men off of roofs, arranged marriages to minors, state-sanctioned wife-beating, female genital mutilation, marriage by capture? Because we have. What's the lesson of Afghanistan? Maybe it's that everyone from the giant dorm room bitch session that is the Internet should take a good look at what real oppression looks like. Ask your maid. Ask your Uber driver. Ask the Asian woman giving you a massage. She'll tell you this place is Shangri-La, and not just because she works in a place called Shangri-La. I mean, listen, if you're talking about the war in Afghanistan and you have nothing to say about neoconservatism and endless war and imperialism, I, you probably shouldn't be talking about Afghanistan because you have no idea what you're talking about. Imagine bringing up this war. And by the way, that was a, he gave a much longer thing there. You can watch the entire thing. Um, at no point does he bring up uh, opium. At no point does he bring up the trillions of dollars of mineral wealth in Afghanistan. At no point does he bring up the military-industrial complex. At no point does he bring up Russia and China and his geopolitical chessboard, which we're on, and we think... They're our top enemies, and so we need to make moves to keep them at bay. At no point does he bring up any of the relevant issues. It's all, it goes back to wokeness bad. Listen, guys, I mean, I don't know how many times we could talk about this on this show. Anybody who knows this show and follows this show knows I'm a critic. I'm a critic of wokeness. But that doesn't mean that every issue is about wokeness. And so Bill Maher said this. There's that guy Christopher Rufo, who was a a right-leaning guy who was able to blow the whistle on Raytheon going, like, super woke and, you know, uh, they had a manual that had all this goofy stuff in there. Yeah, all, I agree. All that stuff is ridiculous. But stop trying to connect every single issue back to wokeness. There's so many people out there who are just these massive one-trick ponies, and they're conservative, and everything comes back to 
uh, wokeness and cancel culture and the social justice warriors. And now there's also this strain of liberal where every single issue comes back to wokeness bad. I mean, the number of more important things that went on uh, in Afghanistan and terrible things that happened because of Afghanistan, the Afghanistan papers proved that we were lying every single step of the way in the war. They said we're going to get bin Laden and we got to get al-Qaeda. Well, that was all accomplished by 2011, but we stayed there and allied with warlords with child sex slaves. And according to a lot of people in the military, they were like, we have no idea what we're doing here. This makes absolutely no sense. And Bill Maher doesn't have anything to say about that. He says, you know, the, the lesson of Afghanistan is that we don't have it so bad here. By the way, the U.S. is largely responsible for a lot of these problems in Afghanistan. I'm not saying all of them, but a lot of the problems, of course, we're responsible for. We just waged a 20-year offensive campaign and, and occupied the country, and over 100,000 people are dead, probably way more, spent at least $2 trillion and destroyed everything in sight, propped up a fake government that collapsed in two seconds, and Ghani, the president, president, ran out the back door with over $150 million. How can you talk about this and bring up wokeness? So let's go through some of the stuff he says there. He says, blind hatred of America is just as blinkered as blind love. Except something that Bill Maher used to understand that he doesn't really seem to get anymore is that it's, it's not about hating America. It's about how do you improve a country? You improve a country by critiquing it, by saying, hey, here are the flaws, and here's what we need to do to make it better. That's, that, I would argue, is love. That's more so love than just letting us make all these colossal mistakes and errors and do these terrible things and say, I'm going to defend it no matter what. If you catch your kid uh, doing crystal meth and joining a biker gang or some shit, are you going to say, well, hey, I love them, so I'm not going to say shit. No, you're going to try to get them off the crystal meth and say, let's, you know, find, don't become part of the biker gang. Let's try to find a productive hobby or something or a group of friends that's not going to lead to you being in jail. That is love. Um, and then he said, uh, this part really triggered me. He said, oppression is what we're trying to stop in Afghanistan. But see, the thing is, I know Bill Maher is smart enough to know that's not true. Because he was one of the, the staunchest critics of the war in Iraq. And he would tell you it had a lot to do with the oil and it had a lot to do with the profits for the defense contractors. He would say that. But now when it comes to Afghanistan, what, you really think we're doing a humanitarian mission trying to stop oppression there? Bill, our, one of our top allies is Saudi Arabia. They have Sharia implemented. He, he does a list of things like, oh, have you heard of honor killings, public beheadings, female genital mutilation? He goes through this whole list of terrible things. And he acts like we were in Afghanistan to stop these things. Saudi Arabia does these things. And we give them money. And we give them weapons. Now, obviously, it's wonderful that we don't have honor killings and public beheadings in the United States of America. But what a low bar. He's like, well, we don't do that. Why are you making terrible arguments on purpose? Why are you doing that? And, you know, the, the comparison of, like, various kinds of oppression, as if, to make, as if to say, well, we've gotten to a good enough point, so just shut up and drop it. That's just a terrible point. What about uh, illegal NSA spying that tracks everybody in the country? That's a form of oppression. What about the authoritarian war on drugs? where you lock up people who are nonviolent criminals who committed crimes that shouldn't even be considered crimes. So you lock up more people than everybody else in the world 
and you don't think that's authoritarian? You don't think that's a form of oppression? What about the death penalty, which is disproportionately given to people of color? Even if a black person and a white person commit the same crime, the black person is much more likely to get the death penalty. Uh, mandatory minimums, which again are applied in a racist way. If a black person and a white person commit the same crimes, and the black person is uh, very much more likely to get the death penalty, or much more likely, excuse me, to get the um, a stronger, harsher sentence, because that's the whole point of mandatory minimums. So how do you look at that and not consider that oppression? I don't understand. Isn't it oppression when we have medical bankruptcies as one of the top causes of bankruptcy in this country? Isn't that oppression? I think that's a form of oppression. I think student debt is a form of oppression. Now, I'm not saying it's as bad as honor killings or whatever. Of course not. But all this stuff should be talked about and discussed, and we should attempt to improve it but no, if you bring it up, Bill Maher just, just brushes it aside and calls it woke. Like, oh, you're being woke by saying America has problems and we should fix That's not woke. And by the way, so he's now doing the, the old school right wing trick on wokeness, where um, what you do is if somebody on the left says something that's true, has a criticism that's true, you just brush it aside and say, well, you're just being politically correct. No, I'm not being politically correct. I'm being factually correct. And also, this, allow, this whole mindset and this charge allows people on the right to get away with saying things that are factually not true, because they can say something false, and then when you disagree with it, they go, oh, you're just doing cancel culture. You're just, uh, you're just being politically correct, and you can't handle that I'm politically incorrect. And you're just being overly woke and sensitive. So you could say that for anything. I mean, I remember people said that. Remember when Trump um, said... We need to take out their families, talking about the families of terrorists. When people on the left criticize that, there are people on the right going, you're just politically correct. Political, it's politically correct just to be anti-war crime? That's about political correctness? That's about me being overly sensitive? No, war crimes are bad. War crimes are really bad. It's not woke to say that. It's not cancel culture to point it out. So, I mean, but this is where we are now with the discourse. Jeez, he's fallen so far. I mean, somebody made this point to me. Bill Maher was probably literally the only person who, was a, who went from a supporter of Bernie in the 2016 primary. He went from Bernie to Klobuchar in the last Democratic primary. Imagine being a Bernie to Klobuchar voter, how bad your brain worms must be. And it has to be, listen, Trump probably just broke his brain. Trump broke his brain. But now we have a Democratic president actually pulling out of the war in Afghanistan, and old-school Bill Maher would have been defending him vociferously. But now what do we get? He does a goofy new rule segment where he acts like it's, it's tied to wokeness, and wokeness is bad because we pulled out of Afghanistan, because compare how bad Afghanistan is to what people complain about here. For the love of God, not everything is about goofy college campuses and people with purple hair and people talking about racism and sexism and homophobia or whatever. Not everything is about that. Not everything is about that. Sometimes, you know, the conversation is just about corruption or just about imperialism or just about the military industrial complex. But again, he had nothing to say about any of those things. Just beyond pathetic. Okay, next.
Oh, this next one is extra pathetic. Next one is extra pathetic. So uh, we had the ISIS terror attack outside the Kabul airport. A lot of people died, not just from the terror attack itself, but then also the reaction and the backlash to the terror attack. Apparently, U.S. military ended up killing a lot of civilians. Um, 170 people dead. Horrendous terror attack. There's already been a retaliatory strike from Biden, and it killed massive numbers of civilians, including children. There's a mess all around. Um, Donald Trump, after that ISIS terror attack, uh, came out and gave some commentary on it. He went on Fox News. Now, the name of the group that did it, this, this is what they're saying. They're saying it's ISIS-K. Um, now, you, that's probably one of the first times you've heard that, that, you know, right before this attack, Biden warned of an attack from ISIS-K. It's just an affiliate and, and a branch of ISIS. It's not even really distinctly different. It's just like the region where ISIS is operating. Um, now, I'm going to mispronounce this, but bear with me here. The K stands for Khorasan. Khorasan. Um, it's a region that in, includes parts of um, Iran, and it's just the ISIS branch of this region where it's mostly a particular ethnicity. So I remember when I first heard ISIS-K, when I heard K, I was like, oh, that's the, the Khorasan region. Because, you know, from reading things previously and following the initial rise of ISIS, you learned that, you know, there were ISIS, there was pockets of ISIS located in various different places. So that's it. I think they're just referring to it as ISIS-K because it's easier to say. Well, Trump goes out there. Here's his commentary. I mean, he just can't help but expose himself to be the giant idiot that he is. Look at the way he interprets what ISIS-K is and what he says is coming next. And that's the new ISIS-X where they broke away, or ISIS-K, they'll have an ISIS-X pretty soon, which is going to be worse than ISIS-K. And that's the new ISIS-X where they... Broke away or ISIS K, they'll have an ISIS X pretty soon, which is going to be worse than ISIS K. So uh, he seems to believe that, like, you know, we're going down the list here. Like, there was an ISIS A, and then they were replaced by the worst ISIS B, and then C came along, and they were really vicious. There was ISIS C, and there was ISIS D. Don, that's not, that's, that's not the way it works. He says ISIS-K is going to come along and they're going to be worse than ISIS- ISIS-X is going to come along and they're going to be worse than ISIS-K. No, the K is, stands for the, the region where they were initially operating. That's, that's what the K stands for. It stands for the Khorasan region. Don, that's, that's what that means. Yeah, no, they're bad. And, and there's, you know, eventually there's going to be an ISIS-X and they're going to be the worst. Then maybe even ISIS-XX. Oh, my God, the XX have got to be. What are you saying? What are you doing? No, I mean, when I heard this, I was reminded that just because you're in the White House doesn't mean that not only that you're not intelligent, but it also doesn't mean that you know what the hell's going on uh, even at a cursory level around the world. I mean, I remember during one of the debates, again, I forgot whether it was Trump didn't know the difference between Hamas and Hezbollah, which, again, he almost certainly doesn't, but it may have been Sunni and Shia. He didn't know the difference between Sunni and Shia. And, like, 
at what point in his presidency did he learn that difference? And did he, you know, make decisions accordingly based on that information? I mean, you probably have a solid argument that he never really learned the difference. And he never really learned that Iran, for example, is Shia, and they're the enemy of ISIS and al-Qaeda, who are Sunni fundamentalists. And he probably never learned any of that stuff. And now he's out there casually saying, ISIS-K, and then there's going to be the ISIS-X, then maybe even double X. And they're just going to keep getting, getting worse, you know? That's what this is. It, no, that's not how it works, Donald. That's not how it works. This guy was leading the country for four years. Four years. And by the way, he might lead it again because if he runs in 2024, I mean, if, it's not, if he's not up against Biden, even against Biden, it would be an interesting race. And Trump might pull it off this time, but if it's like Trump versus Kamala Harris or something, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It really feels like some late-stage capitalism idiocracy-type future that we're dealing with here. ISIS-X. This is in the midst of, like, people being massacred in a terror attack and then being massacred in the fallout from the terror attack and then retaliatory strikes that are killing civilians and total mayhem and, and chaos. And th- this is his, you know, commentary. This is what he has to add to the conversation. This is his contribution. ISIS-X is going to be an ISIS-X. It's probably going to be, they're going to be terrible. They're going to be even more vicious and worse. Dude, just go sit this one out. Go play golf from now until the end of time. Okay, next. So with Biden pulling out of Afghanistan, now the question arises, um, is he going to do Iraq next? Is he going to do Syria next? You know, uh, he's shown that he's willing to stand up to the military-industrial complex from time to time and say, no, I don't agree, and we're going to end this, and you're going to follow through. I'm the commander-in-chief. Um, well, unfortunately, we have some new evidence on this front as to what he plans to do. Take a look at this. He, uh, he had Naftali Bennett, the Israeli prime minister in the White House, and here's what Axios says. Bennett told Biden the U.S. and Israel need to put Iran's regional aggression back in the box in addition to its nuclear program. To that end, he asked Biden not to pull U.S. forces out of Iraq and Syria. The Israeli delegation felt optimistic about Biden's attitude on that front. Bennett also told Biden that he opposes a return to the 2015 nuclear deal and that the effectiveness of the deal had faded because of its looming sunset causes in Iran's nuclear advances. Biden did not seem optimistic about the prospect of Iran returning to compliance with the deal, the officials said. Between the lines, Bennett was very happy with two things Biden said in his statements to the press during their meeting. So um, his sense of it is he ain't leaving Iraq. He ain't leaving Syria. And on the most recent episode of Crystal Kyle and Friends, which everybody should check out, um, we spoke to Congressman Ro Khanna, and this was one of the questions I asked him. So said, now that Biden's proven he has the cojones to end one of these endless wars, is he going to pull out of Iraq next? Is he going to, you know, pull our troops out of more places or stop the drone war in North, North Africa, for example? And his sense of it was exactly like my sense of it, which is like, I don't think he's going to do it because he's having to pay a hefty political price for doing the right thing on this front. And all of corporate media is going after him. Democratic leadership is going after him. They're investigating him with their committees. Republicans are going after him. So he seems, he feels totally isolated and alone for doing the right thing. 
He wasted a lot of political capital doing the right thing on Afghanistan. If he were to do it on Iraq and similar things happen, you know, let's say you have the rise of ISIS again and they take over certain parts of Iraq. I mean, yeah, he doesn't want to have to deal with that, even though, again, it'd be the right thing to pull out of Iraq, too. And so now you get the sense in the meeting with Naftali Bennett that he's letting him know, like, all right, I'm not going to go anywhere in Syria. I'm not going to go anywhere in Iraq. Stay there. We're going to stay there permanently. And again, guys, so everybody was calling, conservatives were calling for impeaching Joe Biden when he did the right thing and pulled out of Afghanistan. Uh, Is anybody going to call for impeaching him over illegally occupying Syria? And by the way, in Syria, we're occupying the oil production region. Gee, I wonder why. So we're illegally occupying a sovereign country and jacking their natural resources, and none of the conservatives wanted to impeach him over withdrawing from Afghanistan and think there's a problem with that. So in other words, they're all imperialists. Hey, we think it's our right to do whatever we want, wherever we want around the world, and steal anybody's stuff. That's what we can do. It shows how broken our moral compass is. And by the way, even the fear-mongering over the 2015 nuclear agreement, I mean... That would have been one of the things. This was a layup for Biden. Immediately when you get back in office, just jump back in that Iran nuclear agreement. All of a sudden, a whole big issue is off the table, and you bring about peace and stability and security for the near future. That was a no-brainer. He said he was going to get us back in that deal. And then now he didn't. And now you have the Israeli prime minister prodding him and egging him on to stay out of the agreement. So they want war with Iran. They want to topple the Iranian government. They want a Western-friendly government in there. Um, They want to bomb their nuclear facilities, even the nuclear facilities that are just being used for uh, scientific research and and for the power grid in Iran. That's what they want to do. And Biden is helping them down this path, gladly going down the same road. And I told you guys when the whole Afghanistan thing was happening that There are consequences if you don't speak up in favor of Biden during this, because what you're doing is it's a massive disincentive for Biden or any other president in the future to do the right thing, because that's an instance of him doing the right thing and getting holy hell rained down on him. By the way, that was the worst the media has ever treated Biden when he did the right thing in Afghanistan. What was the best the media ever treated Trump when he bombed Syria? So maybe, just maybe, the media has a massive hawkish uh, bias and a neoconservative bias, and an imperialist bias. And that probably is because their sources are in the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies, and they repeat what they say, just like stenographers. So they all want endless war, so now the media all wants endless war. It's really disgusting, and it's really grotesque, and it's really corrupt. And unfortunately, my prediction on Iraq and Syria, we're going to stay there. We're going to stay there. and that's, We shouldn't. We should pull out immediately, but we're going to end up staying there. Okay. All right, next. Let me have a little little sip of my seltzer water. Little sip of my seltzer water. Little sip of my seltzer water. Okay, here we go. Here we go, y'all.
So since Biden has uh, withdrawn from Afghanistan, there's been a lot of stuff happening. So obviously the Taliban marched into Kabul and took over Kabul. Ghani, the president, fled with over $150 million in cash. Um, It was just a totally fake government, corrupt government propped up by the West. The military of supposedly 300,000 imploded instantly. So when that happened, Biden responded by saying, well, okay, we have no choice. We have to send in five or 6,000 U.S. troops, secure the airport, and evacuate our people. Now, we did that. Apparently, the only, there's only like 350 or so Americans left in Afghanistan, and there's speculation that the overwhelming majority of them have actually gotten out of the country in different ways. So over 100,000 people in total evacuated. That's really a successful evacuation. Now, there was just an attack on the airport outside of it, though. And not only was, uh, were Americans killed, there were, I believe, the number 13 Americans who were killed, American soldiers. But you also had Afghan civilians who were killed and Taliban fighters who were killed because it wasn't the Taliban that carried out the attack. It was ISIS that carried out the attack. So all this chaos unfolding, all this mayhem, um, you would think that the American public would look at this and say, ugh, not good. Now, in some ways they are. Biden's approval rating on this specific issue even though 63% of Americans want out of Afghanistan, 63%, the way in which he's doing it and the media outrage orgy has made his numbers on Afghanistan plummet from a 55% approval rating, his highest, to a 25% approval rating. So Biden was getting hammered on this issue and the media was relentless on this front. However, just like 63% of the country still said, I want out of Afghanistan, There's another fascinating fact I have to share with you. So this is from Morning Consult. Voters increasingly okay with Taliban takeover as consequence of military withdrawal from Afghanistan. Wow. So voters are like, okay, if the Taliban takes over, it is what it is. Look at this. From the same poll, Morning Consult political poll today. Do you believe the U.S. should still withdraw its military presence in Afghanistan, if it means it creates an opening for al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups to establish operations in Afghanistan. Look at these numbers. 45% still withdraw. 40% don't withdraw. Do you understand what this means? Even when the pollsters try to flat out bias the question to to engineer the answer that they want, Americans are still like, nope, Hey, what if the Taliban takes over and basically has control of all of Afghanistan? Don't care. We should still get out. Okay, make it worse. What if al-Qaeda gets another safe haven and they can operate from this area? What then? 45% still withdraw. 40% don't withdraw. It's plus five still to withdraw. No, 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 no. Listen, Americans are even more right on this than they realize. Their instincts are 100% correct. And I think I know why. I think I know why they feel this way. Because, guys, we have a pandemic ripping through this country. Over 600,000 Americans are dead. We have medical bills as one of the top causes of bankruptcy. We have uninsured people. We have working people are struggling massively. Our infrastructure is falling apart. Depending on the year, it either gets a grade of D plus or C minus. We have all these problems here. Some places don't even have clean water in the United States of America. As I'm talking to you guys right now, you know, a hurricane is obliterating New Orleans and Louisiana on the anniversary of Katrina, by the way. We have all these problems here, 
And elites are trying to tell you, you have to care more about Kabul and Kandahar and stay there forever and spend over $2 trillion. And it's just not going to work. That propaganda is not going to work. Americans aren't buying it. They don't want to do more in Kabul and Kandahar than they're do- we're doing in Flint, Michigan. They don't want to. And it doesn't matter how much propaganda you feed them, they're not bending from that position. There will always be more people who say get out than stay in. If even given the facts that unfolded and the way they phrased these questions, they said get out. So that is a, a huge positive. I mean, we really are being, the American people are being very resistant to the propaganda. The only unfortunate thing is, in one way they're not. And that way is Biden's approval. Because he did the right thing, Americans think it's the right thing, but he's getting hammered as to everything else that's unfolding as it's going down. But guys, I have to tell you, it appears like it was going to go down like this no matter when we left. So you can't say, get out of Afghanistan, and then when the president does it, say, no, 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 not like that. That doesn't make any sense. So any president who's going to pull us out of Afghanistan was going to deal with a plummeting approval rating for doing the right thing? That just makes no sense, but that's the power of the media. The power of the media is with the relentless propaganda and the narrative, um, they just chipped away and hammered away and slowly but surely made his approval rating drop on this particular issue, even though he's doing what people say they want. So um, that part makes me sad. But on the overarching question, you're, you can't get Americans to change their mind at this point. If you say, hey, Al-Qaeda is going to take over and have a safe haven, should we go back in? And people are like, no. Man, that means even with all the relentless propaganda, people have this instinct of, Endless war is bad, and it's a waste, and what the hell are we doing? That makes me happy, even though Biden's plummet on the issue of Afghanistan doesn't. Okay. All right, let me do one more, and then we'll take a break. So the Supreme Court uh, struck down the new eviction ban that Biden just put into place after being prodded by Cori Bush when she was protesting and sleeping on the Capitol steps. Take a look at this little news report on that. Across the nation, the Supreme Court's ruling on the national eviction moratorium has caused confusion, questions, and real concern. I don't want to be on the street. Yvonne Bryant is among the estimated 21,000 people in danger of eviction in Chicago. Nationwide, 6.4 million households are behind on rent, according to a federal survey. In Nebraska, landlords already are pressing to push people out. We had a case just this morning that where yesterday at 5 o'clock I thought the CDC eviction moratorium was going to protect them. And then come this morning, it didn't. And it's a family, there's kids. New York's new governor calls the Supreme Court decision appalling and insensitive. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi described it as arbitrary and cruel. Both women have promised to explore legislative solutions to the problem. And the president is asking state and local leaders to block evictions. Our objective is to keep as many people around the country in their homes as possible. But landlords argued in court they've lost as much as $19 billion a month. That's especially tough for individual landlords who own half the rental properties across the U.S., according to industry experts. This decision is long overdue. Uh, The real harm has been impacted upon the small landlords who, one, who had tenants who were not impacted by COVID who did not pay, two, had tenants who 
who uh, have, have absconded and abandoned the property? Dean Hunter tells me there will be no tsunami of evictions. He says because there are hundreds of programs and hundreds of billions of dollars available in rental assistance, though only 11% of the Treasury's rent relief funds have been paid out. And he points out eviction is a process. In New York, for instance, people who have applied for rent assistance cannot be evicted while the application is being processed. But in Nebraska, I'm told, the number of evictions tripled last year just in the week after the state's own moratorium expired. So, Shep, we'll see what happens. Well, this is infuriating, and this is disastrous, and this is a housing crisis the likes of which maybe we've never seen ever, even during the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. Um, by the way, the same Supreme Court that told us, if we get rid of the, some of the Voting Rights Act and civil rights protections, it's not like the South is going to immediately try to take away people's right to vote. Then they did strike down parts of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, and the southern states did exactly that. So their predictions are not good. Their predictions are terrible. And you have these like landlord groups who are saying, the evictions aren't going to tick up if we um, take away the, the protections and the moratorium. Mm, I highly, highly doubt that. They say, well, there's state and there's local protections. Yeah, but what happens when those run out? And what about the loopholes in that system? There was already loopholes with the federal eviction moratorium. So now you're getting rid of some of the big protections uh, at the national level there's going to be loopholes and problems at the state and local level, and sometimes you'll just go through the process and go through the system, and they'll rule against you anyway. So millions and millions and millions of people are going to be homeless as a result of this. Now, the, the Supreme Court says, well, the CDC doesn't have the authority to do this. Stop and think about that. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention doesn't have the authority to prevent disease by doing an eviction moratorium. They say, well, it has to go through Congress. Okay, well, they probably don't have the votes, but uh, they should try and see what happens. But um, when, when I look at this story, what I'm reminded of is a Supreme Court that has the potential to lose its authority. There were times in American history where the Supreme Court made decisions that were so bad that they undermined their authority. And basically, you had Marbury versus Madison, which gave the Supreme Court uh, the ability to, to do judicial review. Other uh, portions of the government were just like, yeah, now we disagree. And um, we're going to not listen to the court because if we did, you philosopher kings would absolutely destroy the country and drag us down a path that is more dangerous. So I, think, I honestly think we're flirting with that yet again. When you have a decision like this and you have millions and millions of people who might be kicked out of their home as a result of it. Now, this isn't to take away responsibility from Congress. They should pass an extension of the eviction moratorium. Um, but So they're just as bad. They probably have an approval rating that's 20% or less for good reason. So the whole government is corrupt and broken. But there is something about an unelected branch of the government, the judicial branch in this case, um, just decreeing certain things based on their narrow, rigid interpretation of the way the law is supposed to work and destroying people's lives as a result of it. There is something about that that sits extra gross, because at least there's some accountability when it comes to politicians, or you can just vote them out. With uh, the Supreme Court, there's none. They're appointed, they sit there for life, and uh, they could just casually declare that people's lives are going to be ruined. Kicking people out of their homes in the middle of a raging pandemic, in the middle of a wave that's 
just as bad, if not worse, than the original winter wave with the original COVID. Now this is the Delta variant that's largely taken over. By the way, there's $47 billion that's allocated for rental assistance and relief. Only about $5 billion or $6 billion of that money has gone out the door. And we thought, hey, they were bought extra time. The, the federal government, state and local governments were bought extra time to get more of that rental assistance out. Um, but turns out they didn't buy any more time, or they did buy a little bit of time, but the bureaucracy is still so messed up and so grotesque that it didn't matter because you just had a slow trickle of stuff, of money uh, moving along, even though obviously we should have gotten 90% of it out, 100% of it out in the time that we were waiting for the decision from the court. So this is, a, this is a disaster, guys. This is a disaster. We've already seen stories. Jordan Chariton of Status Quo has done a very good job of tracking people who are still being evicted, even when we had the moratorium uh, eviction in place, or excuse me, the, uh, the eviction moratorium in place. I'm dyslexic, and it just popped its, uh, reared its ugly head up again. Um, so he did a good job on that. But there's about to be there's about to be a surge, a tsunami, more evictions coming. We already have a homelessness crisis in this country, and it's about to get a hell of a lot worse. So this is just another way in which every uh, level of government has failed us, pathetically failed us. And um, stop and think about this: billionaires have gotten phenomenally more wealthy during this pandemic. They've added trillions of dollars to their respective net worth um, during this pandemic. At the same time that's happening, we're going to see a surge of evictions and foreclosures. So we're going to see homelessness drastically increase. My prediction is over 100%. It's going to increase over 100%. So we have about 500,000 homeless people. Now it's going to be at least a million. I mean, shit, it might be way more than that. So this extreme inequality cannot continue because the system is undermining itself and, and the foundation and the structure of the system is it's built on sand. And people can only take so much before there's a, basically a system implosion. So buckle up, guys. As bad as it is now, it's about to get a hell of a lot worse. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, still got a lot of stuff to get to. I'm going to talk about the COVID vaccine, and we're going to give some credit to Ilhan Omar for standing up for whistleblowers. Stay right there, y'all. We will be right back.
What is up, everybody? We are back. We are back. And now we're going to talk a little bit about the COVID vaccine. Here we go. This is important. This is important. So with this new surge of the, with the, I don't know how to speak, and I speak for a living. This new surge of the Delta variant of COVID is uh, really making a lot of people stop and question what the hell is going on with the vaccine. Um, You know, how can we have such a giant surge with a decent chunk of the country is now vaccinated? Well, we're going to dive into that right now, uh, and I'm going to tell you what the deal is with how effective the vaccine is against the Delta variant and um, how there's some stuff that's misleading, of course, that's being pumped out there over this. So first, let me show you from Forbes. They say Pfizer shot just 39% effective against Delta infection, but largely prevents severe illness, Israel study suggests. Okay, so now this is a new study coming from Israel Previous studies showed about 64% protection from getting COVID. Now, I got to explain in detail what these different things mean because a lot of people's initial interpretation of what I'm saying here is different from what it really is. So bear with me as I explain here. But there were previous studies which showed actually no, the vaccines are pretty much just as effective against the Delta variant as it was against the, uh, the previous variant. So let me give you some more. A full course of the Pfizer biotech uh, vaccine was just 39% effective at preventing infections and 41% effective at preventing symptomatic infections caused by the Delta COVID-19 variant, according to Israel's health ministry. That's down from the early estimates of 64% two weeks ago from a different preliminary study. Um, Now, here's probably the more important part. The vaccine still provides very high levels of protection against hospitalization, severe illness, and death. So there's 92% protection against hospitalization and 91% protection against severe illness. We showed this chart on the show the other day. There was a chart that showed hospitalizations, and you saw the unvaccinated. It goes like this, like that right there. And then with the vaccinated, it's just like an ever-so-slight tick up of vaccinations. So without a doubt... The vaccine is providing protections. However, those new numbers, the third, let me repeat them. I want to be clear every time I talk about this. 39% effective at preventing infections and 41% effective at preventing symptomatic infections. So what does that mean? Here's what it means. This is summing it up in layman's terms. If you have, um, if you're vaccinated and you're exposed to the virus, you may not get any symptoms at all, and and you may not even get the virus at all, Um, but it definitely is possible, and it's more likely with the Delta variant versus the previous variant, that if you're exposed to the virus and you're vaccinated, you can still get COVID, and you may even be symptomatic, but the symptoms are not going to be anywhere near as severe as somebody who um, isn't vaccinated. So what we're seeing is even people who are vaccinated, there are plenty of mild cases of COVID, uh, and there's even, like, a lot of moderate cases of COVID. So you might have what feels like a bad cold or a weak 
standard flu, like you might feel like that, that's happening in much higher numbers. But again, it, it used to be over 95% effective against uh, severe illness, hospitalization, and death, and some studies had it 98 or 99% effective against severe illness, hospitalization, and death for the various vaccines. But even that number has dropped, but it hasn't dropped enough for concern. So um, protection against severe illness and hospitalization is 92% and 91% respectively. So it has dropped, but it only dropped, you know, single digits before it was like over 95% effective. So again, the big takeaway here is don't freak out. If you're vaccinated and you get it, you'll either not get it and have no symptoms or you could get it and be asymptomatic, or there is a decent chance you could still get it and have mild symptoms or even some moderate symptoms, but you're overwhelmingly likely, if you're vaccinated, you're overwhelmingly likely to not end up in the hospital and not die, and you have way more protection than somebody who's unvaccinated. So I wanted to do this segment to let you guys know the update on the data, because truth has to come before everything else. And, you know, previously it was, the, the vaccine was more effective against the alpha variant. It was, but the nominal um, drop in effectiveness is really not enough to, that should dissuade you from getting the vaccine. Because listen, I've argued this before. Everybody knows my feelings on this, but um, I really believe that the only numbers that matter are protection against severe illness and hospitalization and death. So if it was 95% or 98% effective now, it has dropped, but it's only dropped to 92 and 91% effective. So it's still a very effective vaccine. And then the final point is, I, listen, I have to be honest, I was initially skeptical of this idea of a booster shot because it did feel like a pharma grift. And they, had, they were pushing it before we had evidence at all that a booster was effective and would be a good idea. So it sort of was, pharma was being greedy and putting the cart before the horse and all the things that pharma usually does. And I'm a huge skeptic of big pharma. And I was, at one point, I was just flat out against the idea of a, any sort of booster shot. But guess what? Israel decided um, not only are we going to do boosters, but we're not even going to count you as vaccinated unless you've had a shot within the past six months. And so now a bunch of people have gotten a third shot there. And again, you could look at that and say, hey, that's overkill. Um, where's the evidence that this is a good idea, so on and so forth. There's going to be more studies that come out on boosters um, within the next year or so. But, but guess what? For all the people who had booster shots, only 0.2 of the first 1.1 million recipients that got a third shot were infected with the coronavirus. So in other words, you want to know what really worked to sort of stop COVID in its tracks? Booster shots. So... You've got a lot of protection, especially from hospitalization, severe illness, and death from, the, from getting initially vaccinated. But for the people who had the, the third shot, so in other words, they had it very recently, it basically stopped COVID in its tracks, and it worked phenomenally well against the Delta virus. So listen, I know this isn't something I wanted to think about, and this isn't something anybody else wanted to think about, but it does appear like the best way to fight against COVID, at least with these variants that we have to this point, is every, every six months or eight months, you're going to be getting a booster shot. And listen, it's annoying, it's a pain in the ass, but if that's what it takes to basically guarantee you're not going to get really sick from COVID, then sign me up, son, sign me up. The other thing is, they say that the evidence to this point is whatever the shots are that you got previously, you should get that same 
um, shot for a booster. So if you've got Moderna, you'll end up getting a Moderna one. If you've got Pfizer, you'll end up getting a Pfizer one. If you've got Johnson & Johnson, you'll end up getting a Johnson & Johnson one. Now, it's not that it wouldn't work if you mix and match it. It's that the evidence to this point and the studies have been done with people continuing to take the same shot that they took before. So, so I, for example, I got the Johnson & Johnson. If I end up getting a booster, I should probably get the Johnson & Johnson one. And also, the vaccines do have little differences. So you, the mRNA vaccine, that's the Pfizer and the Moderna, um, the, uh, I don't, the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca are not mRNA vaccines. They're the old technology for vaccines, and they found a way to take an adenovirus and make it mimic COVID, and then your body gets the immunity that way. So I would have to get the Johnson & Johnson one, because at least the studies to this point show that's the way to go. There was a Now, again, this preliminary, and this is from Johnson & Johnson, so take it with a grain of salt, because that's the company that has, stands to benefit here, but they said there was a nine times uptick in anti-COVID uh, antibodies when you had a booster shot of the Johnson & Johnson and you previously had the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So we'll see, but um, that's why there's a surge. It is primarily a, um, it's primarily a pandemic of the unvaccinated right now. And so people who are sort of falling behind and not keeping up and never got vaccinated, they're the ones who are really feeling the brunt of this. But it is also true that there has been a slight downtick in how effective the vaccines are, but don't let that dissuade you from getting it because, again, the more you get, the more protection you have. And that's, as of this point, that's an ironclad scientific fact. All right, next. Ilhan Omar um, decided to stick her neck out there and lead the way on an issue that I think is a very, very important issue. The Intercept originally reported this, but in Newsweek you hear, Representative Ilhan Omar calls on Biden to pardon Air Force drone leaker Daniel Hale. So uh, for those of you who don't know, we covered the Daniel Hale story recently. He's a whistleblower. He's the reason that we know that about 90% of the drone strikes under the Obama administration killed innocent civilians. He's the reason that we know that. He leaked the information. He also was a drone operator, and he had a conscience, and he realized, oh, my God, am I the baddie? Am I the one who's wrong and evil here and killing innocents, and I have blood on my hands? And he came to the conclusion, yes. He got, I think he got some sort of medal for being a drone operator and killing people, and he thought to himself, what a perverted, disgusting system where I'm being rewarded for pressing a button from thousands of miles away and incinerating sometimes civilians, most of the time civilians and children and people like that. That's insane. And so he has a conscience, and he said, this is not okay. He blew the whistle on it, let everybody know what was really going on, and for that, he was sentenced to prison. Again, we covered that story recently. So Ilhan Omar says, Quote, the information, while politically embarrassing to some, has shown a vital light on the legal and moral problems of the drone program and informed the public debate on an issue that has for, for too many years remained in the shadows, Omar wrote in her letter. The legal question of Mr. Hale's guilt is settled, but the moral question remains open. I strongly believe that a full pardon, or at least a commutation of his sentence, is warranted. 
She says, acknowledging where we've gone wrong and telling the truth about our shortcomings is not only the right thing to do, but also an act of profound patriotism. It is for precisely these cases where the letter of the law does not capture the complex human judgments in difficult situations that your pardon authority is at its, excuse me, that your pardon authority is at its most useful. Okay. She's right. She's right. If anything, you could argue, hey, the reason he should be locked up is for pressing the button on the drones and killing the innocent people. That's a legit reason to lock him up. But no, he got, he was found guilty for blowing the whistle and telling everybody about all the killing of civilians that was going on. That says so much about how broken our system is. It's like with the Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange WikiLeaks situation where Chelsea gave to Julian and WikiLeaks evidence of us killing civilians and you had people kill civilians. They did a double tap. They killed the first responders and they were laughing about it as they did it. They were laughing. Instead of the people who did the murders going to prison, Chelsea went to prison for a while. Thankfully, she was released uh, by Obama and then still you have Julian Assange being persecuted to this day. So it says a lot about the system, that it's not the criminals, it's the people who blow the whistle on the criminals who end up going to prison. And this is a rare instance. i got to be honest, I didn't expect anybody to stand up for Daniel Hale from within the belly of the beast, but Ilhan Omar is doing exactly that, and she's right. And I hope that you know AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Mark Pocan and Pramila Jayapal and Ro Khanna and all of them, I hope they all sign on to this and put a little bit of pressure on Biden because he deserves it. He's an American hero. I'm telling you, history is a harsh judge, man, and it's a harsh judge in the right ways. And so people are going to realize that in the same way now we know Daniel Ellsberg is a hero, um, the person who leaked the Pentagon Papers, we're going to learn, we're going to know that Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning, Daniel Hale, that these are all heroes. And by the way, he leaked it to The Intercept and uh, Jeremy Scahill. So... Free Daniel Hale and into the list with actually add Donzinger to that list too. Donzinger, but uh, who's of course blew the whistle on big oil and how they destroyed the country in South America. But anyway, this guy's a hero. Ilhan Omar knows it, but apparently she's one of very few in Congress who does. Okay. Next. Next, next, next. All right, we're already on to Sarah Palin. Breezing through the show today, if I don't say so myself. Sarah Palin went on Fox News with Jesse Waters uh, to bash Joe Biden over the good thing he did, which is pulling out of Afghanistan, withdrawing from Afghanistan. And um, she reminded me of just how big of a doofus she is and how terrible it was to have her on the national scene when she was John McCain's running mate. So look at the line of attack that she ends up using here, not against Biden, but against Kamala Harris, who they figure is really making the decisions. Kamala's been plotting. She's had a little jaunt to Vietnam. She's got a little distance between herself 
and this disaster in Afghanistan. Now she's back stateside. Biden's wounded politically. What do you think's going through her mind right now? She's probably all giddy, thinking, oh, good, here's my chance. But really, she is a giggly, girly, lightweight in the White House alongside blundering Biden, and, and that's a shame. She, uh, I think, unfortunate for her, doesn't have a whole lot of support, even within her own party. Yeah, in that inner circle of the real movers and shakers in the Democratic Party, the, you know, the far, far left, the socialists, they like her because they know what she has in store for America. But, you know, she's not, she wouldn't have a, a really easy road to hoe either. She says the far, far left, the socialists love Kamala Harris. I'm never not amazed at how they get these people on to comment on politics, and they don't know absolutely nothing about politics. You know, she's totally unfamiliar with the left landscape and who's supported by who. At this point, shit, Biden has more support among the left and socialists than Kamala Harris does. Kamala Harris uh, reportedly said when the Afghanistan withdrawal happened and – the Taliban took over Kabul, she reportedly said, like, they're not going to pin this shit on me, because she felt like they pinned the border on her, and so she was getting the flack for the border, and she, you know, she reportedly said that. Now, to be fair, this uh, this was a right-wing source who generally, I think, is a hack and has a history of getting stuff wrong, so don't take that to the bank, but yeah, Biden actually withdrawing from Afghanistan is gaining him more left support, and far, far left support, and socialist support anything Kamala Harris ever did, ever, ever. If you'll remember, during the uh, campaign in the primary, she initially started out pretending to be like Bernie, except she had the benefits of being both person of color and a woman. And so she was right tied up there at the top. And uh, the second she sort of backed away from Medicare for All and these progressive economic policies, she plummeted. She plummeted. And, I mean, think about it, man. She had such an advantage and was considered one of the best from when she launched, and then she squandered it all. The worst thing she did was lean into the whole, her whole campaign became about banning Trump from Twitter. And that's when she really started nosediving, and people saw her as very unserious. The only reason she was even picked by Biden is because the establishment media loves her. But it's so funny how... Um, Sarah Palin conflates, like, corporatists, the establishment media, and the leadership of the Democrats. She conflates that with, quote, the far, far left, the socialists. No, every socialist I know despises Kamala Harris, and they despise her record. I mean, remember, this is a person who was very tough on crime and laughed at the idea of legal marijuana in 2014. This person has no left support. So the one argument that the right-wingers make that's true is actually she doesn't have a lot of support, period. But the fact that Sarah Palin conflated socialists with the establishment says everything you need to know about Sarah Palin. She thinks they're one and the same. She thinks that, like, the people who really run the country and really run the Democratic Party, they're socialists. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? It's not remotely correct. They're corporatists. So there you have it. That's Sarah Palin. Um, Sarah Palin 
contributing to the conversation here. Now, initially, the conversation was about Afghanistan. Of course, she said everything that you would expect her to say. She doesn't really espouse a position. She just goes after Biden. You're, people are really unmasking themselves in, with the whole Afghanistan situation. Because you had people, Sarah Palin's not one of these people, but there were some people nominally on the right who said, I'm in favor of withdrawing from Afghanistan. Then when Biden actually does it, all of a sudden they turn. Uh, you had Josh Hawley calling for Biden to resign over this. Meanwhile, he initially prodded Biden, you better stick to Donald Trump's May 1st deadline and get out of Afghanistan by then. Don't extend it. So they'll just, it doesn't matter. They'll attack him any way they can. The actual principle, the actual issue doesn't matter. The substance doesn't matter. They don't have a real position on any of it. Their position is Democrat bad, Biden bad. And I'm just going to fling mud and hope something sticks. That's their whole thing. That's their whole thing. And so they're just such hacks. I don't know how people don't see that they're flipping on a dime. Um, I have no interest in what these people have to say. And at this point, I'm totally unsympathetic to anybody who's getting brought in by this totally unintelligent commentary and principled, lack of principles and goofy stands for nothing at all. Blundering Biden, you call him blundering Biden because he did the right thing. And uh, as a result of that, Afghanistan fell apart when it was going to fall apart anyway. So go, go back in the woods. Sarah. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see you. And uh, Jesse Waters is one of the least charismatic men in America. Only Wolf Blitzer is less charismatic, but his frat boy douche vibes keep him on the air over at Fox. All right. Now, talk about... Let's talk about the weapons that the Taliban has. This is no bueno. So with the U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan and the Taliban taking over Kabul and now having all of Afghanistan, uh, all the stuff that we left behind is now theirs. So let me show you exactly what has been left behind. This is a detailed accounting. They have 22,174 Humvees, 8,000 trucks, 634, uh, whatever those things are, I don't know what they are, M117s, 162,000 radios, 155 mine-proof vehicles, 16,000 night vision goggles and devices, 169 M113s, 358,000 assault rifles, Jesus Christ. 42,000 trucks and SUVs, 126,000 pistols, 64,000 machine guns, 176 artillery pieces, helicopters, 33, MI-17, 33, uh, Blackhawks, 43, MD-530s, is that what those are? Forgive me if I'm butchering these. I've never uh, read any of these, read about any of these in my life. Fixed-wing aircraft, there's four C-130 transports, 23, um, whatever those are, 28, whatever those are, 10, whatever those things are. Um, so, yeah, this is what they have. Now, I will say, so this was, I believe, in the, was it in the, the Times and the Sunday Times? Okay, so there you go. But this is a little bit misleading because 
that is the total stuff that we had in Afghanistan since the beginning of the war. Now, a lot of that stuff has been blown up. A lot of that stuff has been lost. Um, the idea that they now have access to all that and it's functional is just not true. It's just not accurate. Um, and by the way, in order to fly planes and, and drive tanks and stuff, those things require constant upkeep. So even with the full might of the U.S. military, it constantly requires new parts and um, master mechanics who can get all that stuff working. And um, basically, they can't get that stuff working. So the idea that ISIS now has helicopters and fighter, or not ISIS, excuse me, the Taliban now has um, fighter jets and helicopters, they just don't. And they just don't have the ability to get those things to work. The Afghan military didn't even have the ability to get a lot of those things to work. So don't be, it's misleading to present it like, oh, now they have all this. So, but listen, rule of thumb, if we're going to try to make up how much of the stuff that they have, get rid of all the things that fly and all the tanks, because those are not going to be functional. But I don't know, maybe cut the number of uh, guns and pistols like in half, and they have that, you know, weaponry. That's legit. That's probably roughly what it is. So that is a bit of a disaster. That is a bit of a disaster. Now, I will say this, everybody who's going to harp away on this and act like, well, this is why we need to reinvade and this is why we need to continue our endless war. We send a tremendous amount of money and way worse weapons, weapons that the Saudis actually know how to use. We send it to Saudi Arabia. So that is a government that has implemented Sharia. That's a government that's effectively carrying out a, a blockade and doing a, a famine and committing a genocide in Yemen, they're our allies. Look at the unsavory characters, the so-called moderate rebels who aren't moderate at all on the ground in Syria who we've backed and who we've supported and who we've armed. I mean, you can't... See, that's, that's the thing that's frustrating about this, is this is going to be used as a justification. Like, well, obviously we've got to go back in, we've got to stop them from using this stuff, but how about we just don't arm proactively arm people who are our allies who are dictatorial or theocratic or terrible. Let's start there. Let's stop with just cutting off the flow of arms to human rights violators who we know and who we're close with, like Israel, like Saudi Arabia, like the UAE. We could do that. And obviously, don't do any more endless wars, but if you're going to do an endless war... Maybe uh, don't prop up a fake 300,000-person military and then leave all the stuff there to get jacked, because that's exactly what ended up happening, is that uh, there, apparently people in the U.S. government were, to one extent or another, somewhat convinced that the Afghan government would hold. It only lasted 11 days. It imploded immediately. So all those guns and weapons were supposed to go to the good guys who are propping up a fake puppet government, but clearly it didn't work out that way. So... And also, we have a history of arming people just like the Taliban. Look at what we, we armed the Mujahideen and funded the Mujahideen back in the 1980s in the Cold War. So it's not like this is some new thing. Oh, my God, look at what's happening here. No, that, this stuff has been happening for a really, really long time. Now, it's not good, but what can be done about it? What are we going to do about it? Well, we have ideas coming from the idiot the peanut gallery later where uh, some Fox News guests are like, just, just, fuck, just kill them all. That's all you got to do. I'm going to go ahead and say no. It is not a good idea to kill them all. We'll discuss more on that later, but 
This should serve as further evidence to stop doing these wars. This is another reason to not do these wars. Don't do them in the first place. Because then chaos happens and mayhem happens and we exploit the region and we steal natural resources and the military-industrial complex gets wealthy and the Taliban ends up with the weapons. By the way, that's who's, who's happier than a pig in shit right now is the military-industrial complex, the defense contractors. And they probably even love the fact the Taliban got the weapons. They're like, great. Well, we made money off that up front and now we'll make money selling more weapons to people who can combat the Taliban. The incentives in the system are all fucked up, and this is a giant problem. But no, it's not a reason to go back in. And by the way, there's a decent chance that a lot of these weapons of ours that they have now, um, they're going to end up using them fighting ISIS, because the ISIS attack at the Kabul airport was not approved by the Taliban, despite what a bunch of idiots and liars are telling you, and um, that embarrassed the Taliban internationally and made them look like they're not a legit government when they want to be viewed as a legit government. And so a lot of these weapons are going to be used to turn their ire on fellow uh, Islamic fundamentalists and extremists who aren't listening to them. So it's going to get ugly. It's going to get gross. But all could have been avoided if we didn't go in in the first place. All right, let's go to Mitt Romney. All right, guys, here we go. So Mitt Romney and Mitch McConnell and a bunch of uh, conservative Republicans went on the Sunday shows to talk about Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, and they're going on the offense. They're making a bunch of terrible arguments. Um, Let me show you what Mitt Romney said, and then I'm going to respond. There's a a political slogan, and endless wars, but that doesn't translate into a serious policy decision. And the real policy is this. You, you can't, as one party, end a war. It takes two parties to end a war. The Taliban and the radical, violent jihadists in the world, they haven't stopped fighting. They're going to continue to fight us. The war is not over. We're just no longer in a place where the war had its apex, where, where the Taliban was able to allow al-Qaeda to grow and to attack us on 9-11. We went to Afghanistan because we got attacked on 9-11 and lost thousands of American lives. Now America is more in danger. The reason we have a military is to protect America. And by the decision to pull our military out of Afghanistan puts us in greater danger. We, don't forget, we went to, to Afghanistan to knock down uh, al-Qaeda. But we stayed in Afghanistan to make sure they couldn't reconstitute to attack us again. So pulling out means we are less safe and also recognize the war is not over. We're just in a weaker position. We don't have boots on the ground. We don't have eyes on the ground. When they say, look, we have over-the-horizon capacity, uh, that's a fancy phrase. What does that mean? It means we're not there. The nearest American air base is, what, 1,000 miles away? I mean, you know, I had eyes on my, uh, over the horizon on my teenagers, but that meant I had no idea what they were doing. Likewise, this idea that somehow we're, we're still in control is, is, is not real, and, 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 and America is in greater danger. So I hear you saying that you think we're less safe for leaving Afghanistan than if we have stayed. Do you think that we are less safe now than we were before we went into Afghanistan 20 years ago? Well, I, yeah, I think that's hard to measure, but we're certainly less safe than we were when we had a group of, let's say, 5,000 American service people in Afghanistan standing up as the backbone behind some 250,000 Afghan troops who were keeping at bay uh, the Taliban and other terror groups. Uh, that made us a great deal safer. And by the way, we have thousands of troops, tens of thousands of troops in Germany, in South Korea, in Japan. Why are they there? They're, they're not as favors to those countries, but because we believe that keeps us and the world safer. 
And the idea that we would keep several thousand troops in Afghanistan as long as necessary to keep us more safe is, of course, the appropriate policy to take. But these political slogans come in the way, and endless wars. The war is not ended when only one party pulls out and the others are continuing to fight and now fight with more aggression. But going forward, we're going to have to recognize we're in a much more dangerous position, and we're going to have to invest, I'm afraid, more resources to keep ourselves safe. I, I've heard that argument before about the fact that we, the U.S. service, the US service members uh, are stationed in, in Germany and, and Japan and in South Korea. But it's also true that they're not being killed uh, by IEDs or by an insurgent group. Uh, and, and, you know, I talk to, look, veterans like everybody else are all over the map when it comes to this decision and this horrible week and this and that. But I've talked to some veterans, conservatives even, who say, I'm glad we're getting out. I don't want any more gold star, star families created. Yeah, the, the, uh, the reality is uh, we're, we're even have a greater reason to main troops in a place where there is hostility, where, because those people are going to bring their hostility to America and to Americans and to our friends, whether we like it or not. The idea that somehow we can pull out of a dangerous place where radical, violent jihadists are organizing, and that we can pull out of that, and that's going to stop them, well, that's fantasy. They're going to continue in their effort to regroup and to come after America. Don't forget what they did on 9-11. The reason, again, we were in Afghanistan was to keep another 9-11 from happening. Now we pull out, and, and uh, the Taliban is much stronger than they were before, before in part because of all the, the armament we've given them. Uh, ISIS-K is now alive. The old ISIS that, was, that still is in Syria and Iraq, they're stronger. These forces of, of hate that consider America the great Satan, they're still out there. They're still fighting us. That war, unfortunately, goes on. And the idea that we've pulled out of Oops, hold on. Almost done with the video. They're still fighting us. That war, unfortunately, goes on. And the idea that we pulled out of one of the places that was essential to push back against them is an idea that makes me far more concerned than had we retained a small footprint there to support the people on the front lines, the Afghan National Security Forces, that were doing a, a pretty darn good job. The Afghan forces were doing a pretty darn good job, Mitt Romney says. Have, where have you been in the last three weeks? Do you have no idea what happened in the country? Do you have no idea that we supposedly had 300,000 people who were fighting, and then they instantly dropped their guns and ran as, and went to Tajikistan? The so-called president, who's just a puppet president, took over $150 million and ran out the back door with it. $150 million in cash? The government imploded instantly. Now, yeah, there were 1,000 or 2,000 elite-level Afghan fighters who cared and were really trying to stand up and make a difference, but that ain't enough. They weren't doing a pretty darn good job. Maybe the 1,000 or 2,000 were, but the 300,000? Are you kidding me? And he's pretending like, oh, yeah, that was uh, that kept us more safe. I, I, I don't know if he's just a moron or if he's a liar, but, man, if he just doesn't understand that it was a fake military. He's dumber than I thought. So, I mean, I love this. He literally, the, his first thing he says is he attacks the idea of ending endless wars. But Mitch McConnell said the exact same thing on a different Sunday show. This means there was an, a meeting of the GOP caucus where they all agreed, all right, so we're going to go out there and argue for endless war, correct? Correct? And they were like, yeah, let's do that. Let's argue for endless war. Because they're saying the same thing. They're all attacking the, quote, slogan, end endless war. He says that doesn't translate into a serious policy decision. What do you mean it doesn't translate? It is a serious uh, policy proposal. It means let's get out. What, it's only serious when you're a neocon and an imperialist and a hawk and you occupy places illegally for decades? 
That's the only thing that counts as serious? Uh, what a joke, man. What a joke. He says, well, it takes two parties to end a war. Man, I got news for you. Al-Qaeda is obliterated in uh, Afghanistan. There's fewer than 100 Al-Qaeda operatives left there, and that was as of a decade ago. So, And the Taliban, for anybody who knows geopolitics, they know this, the Taliban is a guerrilla army. They have nationalist ambitions. They don't have global ambitions. They're not a global jihadist network. Now, ISIS is, but the Taliban has been fighting ISIS for years now. And again, you would know this if you follow this stuff closely. So if the idea is, oh my God, we need to make sure we protect America. Well, mission accomplished because the Taliban is in control in Afghanistan. They're the mortal enemies of ISIS, and they're going to fight each other. So it's not, there, there's not going to be some jihadist network that's growing in Afghanistan. That's utter nonsense. That's not true. And by the way, even with 9-11, the idea we've got to go there to attack them. Most of the hijackers, 15 of the 19 hijackers, were from Saudi Arabia, our top ally who you want to arm and you want to fund. You want to give weapons to them as they build radical mosques all around the world. So he's just, it's all a joke. We ought to stay there to make sure that um, you know, al-Qaeda can't reconstitute. There is no al-Qaeda there anymore. It's ISIS and the Taliban, and the Taliban and ISIS are going to be at each other's throats, and they're going to be fighting each other. And by the way, there's a lot of threats in a lot of places. Should we invade Somalia now because they have Boko Haram is there? Is that what we should do? You know, uh, there's a lot of threats in a lot of different places and a lot of bad guys in a lot of different places. That's not an argument to stay there permanently. There's going to be a lot of sloppy, gross arguments like that that you hear from various Republican politicians and various corporate Democrats. But just understand, at the end of the day, it comes down to ending endless wars being a bad idea, in their opinion. That's what it is. So notice, he's, he's criticizing the withdrawal, but he didn't have anything to say about the 20 years of grift and greed and corruption, where the military-industrial complex got phenomenally wealthy, and people in the military were like, there's no goal. What are we even doing here? This makes no sense. He had nothing to say about any of that, nothing to say about us allying with warlords with child sex slaves. But now he's all outraged because we're pulling out because that's leading to some problems on the ground. The problems were going to happen whenever we got out, whenever. So, but Mitt Romney probably knows this, and so his opinion is just never leave. Just stay there permanently. Well, guess what? If we stayed there permanently, we would have violated the peace agreement and the ceasefire, and the guns would be hot immediately. And so then you'd have way more U.S. soldiers dying and way more Afghan civilians dying. There was no status quo of just staying there forever. And, and everything would be okay, and there wouldn't be any more casualties or what have you. That wasn't an option. That wasn't an option. So they're leaning into it. They're leaning into their pro-war take, and it's annoying because it is possible that some of this stuff could land. The American people, 63%, want to get out of Afghanistan. They think that's the right policy. But Biden only has a 25% approval rating when he got out. So these guys are, are just exploiting um, you know, what they view as a weakness of Biden, and they're going hard in the paint. But God, they're the worst. They had nothing to say about Afghanistan during the 20-year war. But now that we're pulling out, oh my God, obviously we should stay in. Obviously we're, you know, we're trying to keep us safe, trying to keep America safe. I don't know if he really believes that, but if he does, he's so naive. To not understand that this has to do with opium and the trillions of dollars in mineral wealth and Russia and China and defense contractors getting wealthy, to not understand that, 
again, I don't know if he is lying or if he's dumb, but either way, this commentary is beyond idiotic. Okay. All right. All right, final story of the day, y'all. Here we go. The soldier who killed bin Laden um, has become a bit of a conservative media star. And uh, he always says the same thing when he goes on these shows, and it's across the board terrible. So here he is on Neil Cavuto's show. Look at his simple solution to what's going on in Afghanistan. Let's go to Bravo, Neil. Uh, the retired Navy SEAL, the man who shot Osama bin Laden. Rob, this back and forth on who controls the airport is it, more than just an academic debate, isn't it? I mean, if you are uh, the Taliban, you want to make sure that you're calling the shots there, right? Well, they've been planning what to do when we withdraw in Pakistan for, you know, 20 years right now. And this um, Taliban, ISIS-K, ISIS um, Haqqani, all this stuff, this is just stuff that they can use against us. They know what they're doing. They can say they're against each other, but when they do some BS negotiations, they being the Taliban, and then somehow ISIS-K comes in, they, the Taliban can say, oh, that wasn't us, that was ISIS. And it's all the same dudes. They're just waving different flags. I mean, these are warlords and warlords and warriors that have been doing this for a long, long time. Yeah, there are guys in there from Syria and some, some foreign fighters, but these are many of the same group of people. And they're, they're just, you know, it's, it, it baffles me right now that we're even considering negotiating with the Taliban. It seems to me it's pretty simple. Everyone outside the wire right now with Humvees and guns is Taliban. They're all right there. Why don't we just go kill them? That's a good idea. We shouldn't be negotiating with these guys. They're not a legitimate government. The fact that we're trying to legitimize them as a government is an insult to everyone who's fought and died in that country. They're just out there. They're doing this. They're laughing at us. And they're going to attack us again because they brought the perimeter. They're not, they're not extending the perimeter. They're just encircling it further and further. They know that they can get close to us like they did yesterday. They can let the dudes in with the suicide vests and the guns. They're going to do it again. And it's going to get worse. The more people we evac, the worse it's going to get for the Americans on the ground. And it's sad that we're doing this. It's, 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 it's shameful to see it. I haven't talked to one veteran that approves. It's disgusting. Some Taliban fighters got killed in the bombing. The Taliban did not do the bombing. They did not give the bombing their blessing. Taliban fighters got killed along with U.S. soldiers and along with Afghan civilians. But you heard what he said there. He goes, it's simple. It's pretty simple. Why don't we just go kill them? It's pretty simple. Why don't we just go kill them? Do you not understand that there are consequences to that? Do you not understand that one of the problems we've had for the entire 20 years of the war is that people on the ground were like, we have a hard time sometimes distinguishing who's Taliban and who's not. We have a hard time tell, being able to tell the difference. We don't know sometimes. Just, just pretty simple. Just go kill them all. Just go kill them. I'm sure there will be no civilian casualties when you do that, and I'm sure there's no backlash and secondary effects when you do that, right? You kill them, and, they, and whoever remains says, I'm so sorry that we have inconvenienced you, good Americans. Now we shall withdraw, and you guys can have cobbles. You think that's what's going to happen? I mean, he's just a dumbass. This guy's just a dumbass, and he's an unserious person. Um, and this is, the, this is the line that you see a lot of conservatives going with now, and even people in the military who are misleading the American people going on TV saying these things, they say, oh, yeah, they could say that the Taliban and ISIS are against each other, but they aren't. Okay, they have been fighting each other for years, for years. We covered the story. Six years ago, 
almost to the day, I covered a story about how the Taliban is clobbering ISIS in Afghanistan because it was being reported on in detail at the time. By the way, also there were stories of like Hamas was letting ISIS know, like, don't fuck with us. Don't fuck with us. So this is not, like, this is not new that the Taliban and ISIS are against each other. Why would the Taliban, why would the Taliban want a terror attack just outside the Kabul airport where a lot of their fighters died? Why would they want that when they're trying to show the world right now, and this is clear from their fake PR offensive, they're trying to show the world, it's cool, everybody, it's cool, relax, relax, we're modern, we're not like the old guys, we mean well, we believe in women's rights and freedom of speech and stuff like that, and don't worry, we'll secure the country, everything's under control, and we're a legitimate government, you could deal with us. Why would they do the terror attack? Therefore, it's the most likely thing to drag the U.S. back into the fight. And by the way, we now know that the U.S. is drone striking everybody and their mother, quite literally mothers and children and women, innocent people. So why would the Taliban try to draw the U.S. back into the fight when they want the U.S. gone? See, he doesn't get it either. The, the Taliban is a guerrilla army. They have nationalist ambitions. They don't have global ambitions. They're not a jihadist network. They, in many ways, they butt heads with the jihadists. That's what ISIS would be, a jihadist group. So he just, he doesn't know this, or he knows it and he doesn't care, because he just says, I don't know what the question is. The answer is more war and more bloodshed. That's what it is. Really? So those 20 years we were there wasn't enough? This is the kind of guy who would say, just like Trump was like, maybe I'll just drop a bomb and I can end the war in 10 minutes. That's what this idiot would do. That's what he would do. I'll just go kill him. Oh, you just go kill him. Oh, okay, I see. What a brilliant idea. Why didn't anybody think of that? Um, he even says, well, these are warlords and warriors, and they've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, and we backed a lot of the warlords in this country, the warlords with child sex slaves. We backed them, and then we discharged people from the military for blowing the whistle on that. So that's our record in there. My take on it is you look at the Taliban, you look at ISIS going at it. Um, okay. Y'all have fun. We're outskies. We're done here. So let them keep going at it. It is what it is. We shouldn't have been there for 20 years. But, of course, the reason we were there is war profiteering, the military-industrial complex, um, natural resources, um, keeping China and Russia at bay, like all the terrible imperial ambitions and reasons. And this guy is too dumb to understand that. And his uh, genius military advice is, it's pretty simple. Why don't we just go kill him? Well, this is now the, what, second time you went on Fox News to say this in the span of a week? This is what passes as intelligent content on Fox News. This is what passes as intelligent uh, discussion and, and policy discussion when it comes to war and when it comes to foreign policy. It's pretty simple. Let's just go kill them. Yeah, just casual, casual genocide on a random Tuesday. Thank you. Thank you for uh, enlightening the audience. Okay, guys, we are Dunskis. I love all y'all. We have a show Wednesday, and then next week we are off, but I will have a special series that's uploaded for you. So um, everybody have a great rest of your day. I'll talk to you soon. I'm out. Peace.